Welcome back to the Cosmology and Science Podcast, where we look at new discoveries in science and inquiries into the beginnings and nature of the cosmos. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show. All right, so welcome back, everybody. And we have now a new episode with our recurring guest, or at least returning guest, Chris Brown. He is a cosmologist, independent cosmologist from Georgia in the United States. So, Chris, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Richard. How are you? I am good. It's kind of a heat wave here in England, so it's uh, it's fun. And we have the jubilee for the for the queen, seventy year as queen. So that's uh, oh wow, just is <laughs> decorated. Yeah, it's really really nice. Is that a and is how, that a is that a record? <laughs> that's a good question. It might. It sounds be like a record. At least one of them. Longest reigning uh, royals, queen, king, yeah. So, and everyone is so supportive, and everybody loves the queen, and I think also she is fantastic. So <laughs> that's, a, that's a kind of a festival feeling here. Yeah. Uh, okay. How about Georgia? Is it is it warm there? It is. Uh, today is a beautiful day, but it is starting to get warm. It uh, mm. uh, it'll get it'll get deathly warm here in another in another month. I just planted my garden. And uh, yeah. I was walking around it yesterday, and I was just covered in sweat. And I'm like, uh oh. But it, you know, in the mornings, it's it gets it gets cool at night. It gets like down to like 55 or 60. And uh, my dog is underneath my feet, so hopefully right. he will. If you hear breathing, that's him. <laughs> but anyways, yeah, it is getting uh, it is getting crazy warm. Yeah. Can you see the see the stars at night still, or how is that? Yeah, I mean, I have pretty good, uh, the trees, the trees block my view, but uh, if I go to, like, say, in my garden, I can see pretty well the, um, uh, there's still a lot of light pollution. I live in the middle of nowhere, but the the closest town is like uh, 20 miles or something. It's a pretty big town. And so there's uh, a lot of light pollution from that. But the best night that I've ever seen, now I've been to a lot of different places. Like I was in Kyrgyzstan for a little while and uh, Mm -hmm. I've been out in the Western United States quite a bit in like um, Wyoming and Idaho and and done some stargazing. And the best place that I've ever seen it was here locally one night. It was just a perfect condition night. We were on in a boat on the lake and it was Mm -hmm. absolutely breathtaking. I mean, like it was, it was at a level that I have never Never other like there is no other experience that that come close to that as far as stargazing like wow. the, like it was impressive wow. that night and I don't like ever like there was like four of us on the boat and we all agreed we were the, for hours we we're just like what in the world like the stars are crazy looking tonight you know and so I, I don't know what yeah. it was about the conditions that night but it was impressive you I, know I I've had one night up here that. I think it was after three or four weeks of constant kind of overcast and, and the atmosphere was full of stuff. And then suddenly it just all cleared out. And uh, maybe it was something similar, but it just felt like there was no, there was nothing between. I kind of, you saw 100% clarity straight out of the atmosphere. And then it's like the, all the stars were bigger and closer. Uh, it was kind of scary and breathtaking and immensely beautiful at the same time. <laughs> Yeah, um, it's uh, there's yeah there's something uh kind of thrilling about it when you when you experience it you know uh, yeah I kind of so I wonder how it looked you know t- yeah. ten thousand years ago or something 
Well, I had a, uh, well, another tangent on the side there, but I, one of my most beautiful moments with the stars was actually in the southern part of Italy. There's a place called Paestum, which is a bit south of Naples, uh, where you have the Greek temples. It was a big city in the, like the big uh, Magna Grecia, as they call it, like the big Greece in the ancient times. So they built temples there. And I was just, I came there late at night and it's uh, in the middle of nowhere. And yeah, I just saw this Greek temple and I looked up and looked at the stars. And it was so uh, kind of like goosebumps still because it was just, <laughs> I saw the same story like night sky as, as uh, the Greek philosophers and maybe Plato and Aristotle were even there. So that's, um, that was a connection with, with the clarity and kind of how close the stars were for ancient people as well. So, um, yeah, so, but, uh, I thought we're going to today talk a bit like, uh, following up from our last talk, which is about one and a half years ago, we went through much of cosmology and gravitational redshift and perhaps then having some questions about the idea of expanding space and, and also other parts of the cosmology. So, but there are a couple of new things. And one of the things I've noticed now or was made aware of was the, the part with surface brightness on distant galaxies, uh, both through, you sent me a paper uh, from uh, Eric Lerner. And then I started reading a paper from, from Hubble, the person Hubble, where he talks about the surface brightness and that if the galaxies are moving away from us, they should have less surface brightness. And then Lerner is concluding that this is not the case. So um, do you have any, any thoughts about this? Uh, have you looked deeper into this? this you know, I, when I wrote my book, I researched this pretty, like I remember researching this and, and finding that there was like, it was, it was almost like it was uh everybody was in agreement that this, the, that it, all of the the what do they call it the Tolman test or something like that 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 all of the Tolman tests mm -hmm. had 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 concluded that it was matched with an expanding universe, which that's that's to me that's mm -hmm. what that I thought that they had concluded and so like I I didn't know when you look into it it's a little weird because they do like the evolution of galaxies and they change it you know and it's a little hard to follow, but. You yeah. are absolutely right that this is kind of a newer development uh, because like now the landscape, when you research it, all you find is learner stuff. Like it's, it's everywhere. Uh -huh. If like, I just searched for surface brightness, surface brightness, expanding universe. And almost everything was, yeah. you know, saying that it was, uh, that it was, it was usually learners papers. There's several, I didn't know that he had published so many papers. Now there may have just been like two or three mm -hmm. and then there's re, they're republished and stuff, but there was, uh, it, it, like the one from 2018 that's in, you know, that the, what is that? The, uh, I forget the, the yeah. journal, but this is, this it, is the one in the, yeah. Yeah, the Royal Astron uh, Astronomical Society, uh, published by Oxford University Press. Yeah, so that seems kind of established. <laughs> I, I think that may be the a, the best, a, the like one of the published like, paper. That, that may not be the leading journal for for that field. Um, mm -hmm. The thing is, is that it, it's it seems like they're looking at it differently now. There was a few other papers from the other side from from the the Lambda team, Team Lambda. 
that uh mm -hmm. that were like they were basically um saying that the tolman test is not really a good test for deciding whether it's an expanding or or non-expanding universe and that that that's changed you know and the reason is and they're kind of right like it's like yeah sure learner is showing that it, the expanding paradigm doesn't really fit with the with the with the Tolman test, but the thing is, is that it's like as you get further and further away, if it, it, it's less reliable and reliable, you know, because of there is like some sort of adjustments you have to make for the evolution of a galaxy, and I'm actually not quite sure what yeah. the di difference between the evolution of a galaxy in an expanding universe and a non-expanding universe, but there's definitely going to be differences there. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's not that it's 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 an interesting point because it's like they've they used to use it as as one of the the verifications that it was an expanding universe and now learner it seems like they they've changed it to where there's it seems like yeah. the biggest objection is that it's not that good of a test. Is, yeah, is there, I, I read that's something the similar to that uh, they did. Yeah, now they're dismissing the Tolman test because they say it's so old and that we have now better ways of of uh, establishing the fact that they are moving away. So they're kind of dismissing the test <laughs> since since his results his results are not conforming to their their models fully. Uh, but um, yeah, so he there's for listeners as, as well here. So so what Eric Lerner is doing in his papers is just showing that uh, the the distant galaxies should be dimmed compared if they are moving compared to if they're not moving. And then with his research, he's showing that they're not dimmed and they conclude that it's a fully Euclidean cosmos that we're watching, uh, looking at, and that they're not expanding, they're not moving. So um, it would be interesting to see if there's any any other it, response. Yeah. It, it seems on, like... on the data and on the, on the, on the math and stuff. Lerner seems to be well respected in mm -hmm. in the establishment, which is kind of interesting. To <laughs> there's there hasn't been that many. Yeah. There hasn't been that many. Uh, well, actually, there has been. That's all of science. There's all these rogues. That's it's always a rogue, and then they they love. They end up adopting the rogue, and mm. but um, yeah. Uh, the, the learner has uh, something else that I, I noticed. Uh, I don't know if there's a, a paper published on this, but which I, I thought it was kind of interesting. There's these the anisotropies in the cosmic microwave background radiation, and that that's basically just the irregularities, you know, yeah, like yeah. like you know, it's not quite perfectly smooth or like all the same color, you know, if you will. Um, uh, and so uh, uh, he showed that it was in line with our mm. Milky Way galaxy. The reason that it, it was there's this pattern yeah. to it. Uh, it was because the the it's the the pattern is is parallel with the plane of the Milky Way galaxy, and so that you know that that's that should not be the case at all. Mm. <laughs> if it was. If it was from the the Big Bang, that you know, then ah. there would be no no relation to the Milky Way. That's interesting. If if the background radiation is 
Yeah, but I, so I was making a list to a friend the other day because we talked about this and uh, just summing up some of the points that if it was, if the space is expanding, then space should be stretched in the cosmos. We should have a curved geometry in the cosmos, but it's not. It's Euclidean and it's flat, which they call the flatness problem, which is acknowledged by everyone. And then space should, if it's expanding, it should also be expanding in, in galaxies, but it's not. It's just expanding then according to the models then uh, between the galaxies, which is also a bit, uh, bit strange. And then the third point was this with the receding galaxies that you should have a dimmer surface brightness. Uh, and then according to Lerner, at least, and some and the people he worked with, uh, it's not. And then the last point was that distant galaxies, if they're especially like 13 billion light years away, that should be 13 billion light years in the past. And then we should be looking at a very young kind of infant universe. But what the Hubble telescope found as well is um, like the current one, is we found big and matured galaxies, which was which is very hard to reconcile with the time exactly. scale that they developed in such a short time. So um, it's just out of those four points, the the surface brightness is um, is an interesting to look into. The you know the thing that I've been saying for since since I've started this stupid quest was is that you have to. It doesn't matter what data you use. It doesn't matter what test you use or what journal you publish in even. There is no changing it until you change. The, it's like you have to change the the messaging somehow in a way that shifts the culture of the community because the evidence is overwhelming that the Lambda mm. paradigm is wrong. Lerner showed, like, I watched a quick, a, a quick YouTube video of Lerner, and he was showing um, some slides, and he showed that the uh, the predictions versus uh, observation were more accurate in the beginning, or, like, early on, and then as mm -hmm. the years progress, the, uh, the, the, the model fails to, to predict you know data um, worse yeah. and worse uh, the the failure rate gets worse through the years but uh, it's i think that 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 you, until you have you know an obvious explanation for the redshift then then you can't like yeah. there's you know that that that's the most important thing but it's also i don't think that there was ever like the expanding paradigm was ever an accurate way of doing cosmology because it, there's the, like the, the basic cosmology, it's called the cosmological principle. It's like the, the, the most fundamental way of, of looking at it, uh, 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 at the universe. So you have, you expect to the universe to be kind of the same, no matter where you're at, but it also, it should also mean no matter when you're at, because in the future, in the, yeah. you know, like a civilization, say in a trillion years from now, they're not even going to be able to see any other galaxies. They're going to be in their own galaxy and the galaxy is going to be so distant yeah. that they won't be able to see them in the sky. And it, it, that's, mm. you know, they, like, how are they going to know that the universe expanded to, to where they, to where they are? And so that's, like you, why aren't we in that? That because in yeah. in the 
in the realm of all possibilities, you would expect that there'd be more civilizations during that time if they if they can exist. And and, and so why are we yeah. just the law of averages? You would expect where that's there's no other galaxies except for the Milky Way. Like you, but you know, there's there's. Yeah. Like yeah, the point the, is, is yeah, the, 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 the point problems. is, that, <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, and it, there's it's such a weird, uh, it's such a weird thing, uh, a paradigm it, it, it is, especially in cosmology. Cosmology is, um, I don't know why it's so much different than the rest of the sciences. It, it's, I guess it's because you, it's, uh, it's a kind of a it's a top it's a subject that we don't um, we're not even sure what we are talking about. We don't know the size. Even if you think expanding space and Big Bang, we have no idea how big it is beyond the visible boundaries. So we're making complete conclusions of maybe we might be looking at one percent of the of the totality, or maybe one trillionth or a trillionth of the totality of the of the total universe, but we're still trying to make conclusive models based on, I, I tried to make another like comparison the other day, which like, if you grow up in the desert and all you see is the desert, and then you conclude that the whole planet is a desert, that's a little bit like, since we only can see 3.7 billion light years out, uh, it's, um, it becomes guesswork to some extent. So it, it I, is, I it's, it's, it's really, it's, within, it's, yeah. It's all guesswork. <laughs> Cosmology is all but, guesswork. But I think, but it's also like, uh, yeah. You know, I, I think that humility is the best approach, but it's hard for me to be humble. And so I can understand their reasons. Like, I don't want to be humble when I oppose the, you know, the expanding universe. Uh, for me, the idea doesn't make sense because there is no reason like there's no like you have gravity that that would mean that there's the effects of gravity throughout the universe whatever that means mm. but there is nothing for yeah. expanding universe it's just it's just an observation thing that they uh it, it's an it's a redshift anomaly is what it is i think it's just gravitational yeah. redshift that you know i i find the uh uh, Milton Mordeheim, I hope I'm saying that right. I, I, the Mond paradigm, I find that 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 is uh, it, like exactly the right approach. Almost like it's almost identical to say that there's a minimum acceleration. And so, it, I, I didn't know this, but I was reading one of his papers, like you know, just a couple months ago, and. I stumbled across it and I'm like, oh, wow, his work is so similar to mine because he was he was saying that there should he just didn't go. He needs Milton should take it a step further and just say that there's the universe has a minimum acceleration. It's not necessarily a modification to Newtonian dynamics. It's just that the classic Newtonian dynamics was wrong because there's uh, objects are embedded within one another. So there is nothing uh, mm -hmm. that's that's has its own parameters. You can't say this star has this amount of gravity because you have to include, you know, the observer's relationship or whatever object you're 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 discussing in relationship to that star. Yeah, yeah. Well, you could say it at, at the surface of the star, you could say it has this. 
like if you're uh, standing the, on, on the surface. Right, but, yeah. but what is the surface? Like, okay, you know, that's a particular you're saying, then it's, you know, actually it's what you're saying at the surface is yeah, well, it's distance from the center. The, the, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Just, just uh, Partly just for listeners, just to make the distinction that like when we're talking about here, the difference between the gravity of like the the gravity that causes a redshift if if you're standing next to a galaxy or if you're standing 13 billion years light years away from a galaxy, then the whole mass is a very different. Like <laughs> at that distance, the mass you have to take into account is enormous. This is kind of enormous sphere with the galaxy in the center and us at the radius. So. Yeah. I mean, you know, this there's is basic. E I mean, you, this is one of the main points in the, in the book, but but I just for people listening, there's still a problem with the term surface gravity because it, it, even surface gravity, like I, everyone knows what you're talking about with the surface gravity, it's the visible surface. Okay, yeah, sure, I, I, I'm fine with that, but you mm. still have a relational problem because the surface gravity of the star at the surface is X amount. But when it's mm -hmm. when you're far, far away to where it's embedded in a galaxy that's embedded in a cluster of galaxies, then, you know, it's 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 uh, mm -hmm. the surface gravity would appear differently from, you know, the perspective yeah. of the of another person, because there's mm. there's more there's a, a, a minimum acceleration from the the, the parent objects that adds to the yeah. to the to the surface gravity and so if you if you just expand that outward because filaments there's you know you have you have clusters of galaxies then you have i think they call them filaments and and veins mm -hmm. you know the the universe is kind yeah. of a grid like a, a structure and so these these parent mm -hmm. these larger macro structures create a minimum acceleration depending on the perspective which means you have to use distance to determine the distance mm -hmm. the star the lot has traveled to determine the amount of gravitational redshift and so that's why uh that's why you can eliminate hubble and so we've already we've already discussed yeah. that but the the thing that i i found interesting was that Milton has never had taken it to the next level. He's always talked about, you know, usually it's a description of, of dark matter and dark energy. Uh, and, and so that, that, that minimum acceleration comes into play there, but it also, it should also come into play mm -hmm. with, with gravitational redshift. Yeah. So, um, I just, uh, I just pulled up here like a quote from from Hubble when it comes to redshift. From so he wrote a paper in 1947 for the Astronomical Society of the Pacific, um, and he says there were like the, some some indications that there are other forces, other reasons for the redshift. And then he says that it seems likely that redshifts may not be due to an expanding universe, and much of the current speculation on the structure of the universe may require re-examination. That was his own words on in in 1947. So. And that's that was Way significantly later. Yeah, then when it's like that's 20, 20, 25 years later. So he's 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 still he's very cautious about this. Um and that's I mean, this is also the paper is part of uh an argument to build a two hundred inch telescope. Uh, and he was using a hundred inch at the time. So he could this is also interesting, he could see 
just half a billion light years out. And then he wanted 200 inch so he could see 1 billion light years out. Uh, and now we see 13, 13 and a half or so <laughs> billion light years out. So so he, he looked at a smaller uh, smaller part, smaller sphere in, into the universe. You, you know, those early guys, they uh, all of the people see the early the early 20th century was had some of the brightest physicists ever, like not just Einstein. I mean, there was all kinds of like Alfred Whitehead, hmm. Poincare. You know, there was just so many brilliant mathematicians and, and physicists in, in the beginning. Of, and they really were reluctant to to adapt the expanding paradigm. In fact, I think the, the biggest uh, proponent of the expanding paradigm was what Lemaitre. And I think he was a, uh, a Jesuit priest, you know, and I'm not saying that 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 influenced the work, but I think that that's, you know, like that's just a fact that people should know and that it took, it took those other brilliant minds a long time to adapt the expanding paradigm. And some of them never did, you know, like Fritz Zwicky fought his whole life against it. I, I, I'm, I'm fairly sure I, I could be wrong about that. For some reason I, I may have, I get him and another guy mixed up. But anyways, there was, there were several opponents that were brilliant people in the, in the, in the beginning. It's only now that, I mean, there's a lot of brilliant opponents, that's always been against it, but it, you know, in mainstream academia where the professors are, are, are teaching, like, you know, pretty much all of them are teaching the expanding paradigm at a university level. Yeah. And I think it's sad, you know, I think a lot of them in private would, would tell you that like, yeah, there's big problems with like, the, <laughs> there are some issues with this, <laughs> with, with this whole framework of, like for the model, um, but but what you said earlier, I just want to repeat that. Like, so the Big Bang theory is made by a, a Belgian Catholic Jesuit priest, Lemaitre, and he bases it like it is, it is Genesis. Like, let there be light, and then creation comes into being. And he's also Thomas Aquinas with the whole idea of uh, that the divine creates the cosmos out of nothing. So he takes kind of two of the biggest. Uh, explanatory models in Catholicism, and and uses that as a as a ground for his model, or he kind of me merges that together with the expanding space, and then takes it backwards. So um, I think it's absolutely a, a good point. And also, if nothing else, when people think that uh, religion and science is always <laughs> um, in conflict. That's the entire um, reason for the the scientific method is is so you don't have human bias in the 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 data and knowledge yeah. you gain. If you go a bit back in time, it's more like the idea that the divine created a, an intelligible cosmos, and then we as humans can try to understand how it was all made. But but it's very much uh, in harmony with with their religious beliefs back. Um, yeah, just just a hundred years ago, and then for centuries before that. So that's a that's kind of a, an uh, an, uh, an argument from the other side. Not not that you you discredit uh, the Big Bang theory because it was made by a religion person, but but you can also then see that it's actually. Um, but it's a different topic, though. But I almost think um, that it's it's yeah, more so, of an but, indication of say the, the the primitive nature of of men at that time because or of. Lemaitre say in that they didn't quite they didn't quite grasp the infinite to me 
an infinite universe would be more indicative of a creator than a, a finite universe. Finite universe just doesn't, I don't know. Like it mm, just, that's very interesting. Yeah. So uh, it brings us to the next, next point I had on the list, which is that uh, I've been studying and looking into the brain hemispheres and the work of Ian McGilchrist is a British uh, psychiatrist and a writer and philosopher. And he wrote the emissary and um, the master and his emissary in 2009. And then he wrote a new book now, the, the matter with things. And he just goes through all the brain science so that we have two, two different brains, essentially they're connected, but, but you can also split them completely with, as they do with uh, epilepsy patients. And then you have kind of two independent brains. And also this connection between the brains is most, mostly just uh, limiting the signals back and forth. So, and if you look into this, you start seeing how you, in some sense, have two different ways of thinking about the world and apprehending the world and also creating models. And then the Big Bang Theory is very much a left hemisphere type mm -hmm. of thinking, which is to, uh, well, both like you take, you analyze things into bits and then you build up a model, but you also, you grasp for full control and certainty about everything. Your right brain doesn't work like that. The right brain is very uh, relaxed with ambiguities and with uncertainties. And it sees, uh, it approaches things from a holistic, more just like perceptive um, like way of apprehending and being. So the infinite is very problematic for the left hemisphere or the left brain to grasp with. And I, so what you said was exactly the thing I've been pondering for a few weeks, that there's an enormous resistance to to leaving the Big Bang model because it's so beautiful in the way that it it creates total certainty and it explains everything. Because then the alternative is that, well, we are floating around in a stable Euclidean yeah, cosmos where we can only see a certain radius, but it's most likely inf infinitely big and infinitely old. So it's not, it's not very exciting news either. So then people would rather stick with the model we have. I think that's a part of it. And, and I think that's one of the reasons that dark energy and dark matter will never go away is, is because it's something that's mysterious. It's like mm. we love a mystery. And I think the Big Bang is kind of like that, you know? Yeah. It's like all the same. It's like the same thing. But if you come, you know, <laughs> you come into the marketplace of ideas and say, oh, listen up, everybody. The, the cosmos is... Is we living in an exploding cosmos, exploding universe out of nothing, and then that is very attractive and fascinating. So Unfortunately, if you if you sit down and, and try to give it some some logic thought, then the story mm. is ugly. Like I don't, I, I personally despise the idea that the universe came from nothing because it's just this non-meaningful answer whereas an infinite universe in all directions it's like okay so we have to conquer what that means before we can move on to where we you know yeah on on to something else well there's an there's another aspect with well in general paradigm shifts but also especially scientific paradigms i think because um it, it to change your mind uh, you need a certain openness and maybe some like creativity and that you you kind of embrace this unknown and the adventure and exploration of something unknown 
which is not usually how how scientific thinking works. You're kind of driving in the opposite direction usually with like scientific endeavors. So kind of to to leave something behind and embrace something a new a new journey is um, I think is harder in some scientific areas than I also think that there's a major issue that hardly anyone has addressed is and that that science on uh, this uh, like a global scale is a little weird to say that there's a consensus you know there's certain things that you can say that there's a consensus paradigm but th there's still a good chance that the consensus paradigm is wrong especially on minor details or in major details and so it really just all depends on who's controlling the voice and so that may be the thing that we have with the expanding pair you know of course the universities are the most important people like if you have people in every place at the university teaching the expanding paradigm then that means that there's yeah. You could kind of say that there's a consensus, but it, there's uh, it, there's a lot of, uh, to, into the culture and not the science is what I'm saying. Yeah, but it's interesting. I, I had a look at um, Wikipedia page, the Wikipedia page on Big Bang in different languages, and it's presented very differently. So like if you look at the Italian version, they're much more saying that this is the... Uh, like the predominant model, uh, but it has several issues with it. There's seven, uh, several open questions, um, but but it's kind of based on what we see. There are like a, a majority is leaning towards that this might be true. But then if you go to the English one, it's it says more like this is essentially universally accepted now, which is just not right. So it's it depends on which language sphere you're in as well, like how. How def definitive it's presented. You know, I think one of the problems is who was the guy that we were talking about? Um, not, it wasn't Lerner. It was, there was another guy we were talking about. It was the Ether uh, guy. What is his name? Yes. Uh, I forget his name. Glenn That's, Burke. Yeah, his last Burke, name is hard to pronounce. Glenn. I call him Glenn. Yeah. But yeah, that guy, look, I, I'm, you know, God bless him because he's. He's a uh, static universe guy. I like. I mean, I'm, these these are my people. But the thing is, is the alternative cosmology crowd doesn't always subscribe to the same things. It's not just that it's it's expanding versus non-expanding. You know, you have general relativity. There's all these mm -hmm. points of of contention in physics and it's kind of hard to get everybody on the same page. And so I, that's why you want to influence the, the people that believe in the expanding paradigm is because honestly, I think general relativity is one of the greatest accomplishments in physics ever, if not the greatest, like general relativity is basically an explanation of the universe. I think that it's not just an explanation of gravity. Like it, the, these these tensors that that he's using, that Einstein used to demonstrate gravity uh, impact on the coordinates around them. I guess that's how you describe general relativity. These tensors are are the universe. It's like how the universe behaves, and it's. I think that that uh, uh, Glenn. I think that Glenn is kind of right in that that the mainstream has this wrong view of space time and that it is more like an ether. I think that it's 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 not 
more like an ether. It's kind of like, like ether is the wrong word. I think space time is the right word, but it, the space time needs to be understood as containing mass because they're not mass and space time are not separatable entities. They are intertwined with one another. And these tensors are representative of that. These, these, you know, like you have the Mikowski metric is this, it's like, it's a set. uh, There's a whole bunch of equations and indices and components and stuff within, within these metric tensors. But they all add, it's it's the pieces of the universe. And I think that that's the right approach. A geometrical approach is the right approach. And so there's, you know, I would condemn Glenn in saying that we don't, we don't want to throw it, the, the baby out with the bathwater like this, this, this mathematical approach is exactly right with our universe. And I think, I actually think that's what Gregory Perlman showed when he resolved the point care conjecture, because it's like, you're talking about the most fundamental aspects. It's not just a single point in space. No, it's more than that because it's a single point in the universe. And what does that mean? There's, you know, it's not independent from the rest of the universe. So the universe behaves, it's kind of like this three sphere where, you know, you have all of these points Mm -hmm. of gravity you know, you, some are small, some are big, but they're all part of the same system. And it's this thing and it can be expressed using, you know, differential geometry. And, mm. Yeah. So, um, you're bringing up all the things that, <laughs> like, so that is going to be the, the topic now, like your ideas about space, time, gravity, and mass. Uh, I, I just wanted to slip in, uh, like a wrap up, uh, Two points. One is that um, the thing uh, you said now about uh, alternative, or I like to point out that expanding space, you can question that, or uh, astrophysics as a field, as far as I've looked into it, is excellent. Excellent. It's super detailed. It's super thorough. It's based on on, uh, on observable facts. It's excellent. Cell biology, molecular <laughs> molecular biology, uh, the nanomachines and the DNA coding within the cell is also excellent, brilliant research. It's a super good scientific field. But if you look at those two as an example, and then you move on to cosmology, then it's a whole different... So just to avoid people thinking that you're questioning everything in science, it's not like that exactly. at all. It's just that there's something this expanding space thing is, is something very unique. So that's one thing. And I just wanted to say that the last part of Hubble's paper from 1947 is just a beautiful kind of, it's a very British way of, of, of concluding as well, because he wants to have this new telescope. You can see it twice as far into the universe. And he just says that as the darkness is pushed back, greater problems will doubtless emerge, which we cannot now foresee. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's a bit of this humble. Uh, even <laughs> cosmology is uh, an excellent field, especially when you're talking about like, uh, like galaxies that are very nearby and, and, you know, definitely dynamics of star systems and things like that. It's just, it's just when you get to talking about origins and, you know, the, of course the Doppler mm-hmm. interpretation, I think is, just a giant, giant mistake. Yeah. But I think that it will be realized. There is new research uh, that is, you know, was published recently uh, where they were talking about large scale, uh, large, large scale gravitational coherence or something like that. I forget, I forget exactly what the paper was. I actually looked for it a few weeks ago and I couldn't find it. But um, 
Uh, I remember seeing it in headlines. Uh, it made its rounds through yeah. the media where there's these large scale structures that, that a cosmologist haven't quite realized. And when that catches on, all they have to do, I mean, they're, they're so close to realizing that the, the, that's the key to their paradigm is that they're not realizing that objects are embedded within larger scale structures. And so that there's, there's a lot more gravitational impacts than they're, they're letting on. Yeah. You said something great earlier about um, how like the evidence is mounting. It's just with back to learner for a second. He is so patient in his work and then he wrote the book 30 years ago which is called the big bang never happened and but his one of his conclusions is that the more observations the better equipment we get we're going to get the more we're going to see that it doesn't make exactly. sense so he he's just taking this really laid back <laughs> approach and just like let's just time work for us and then it would just crumble eventually and then he's kind of working on I guess both like alternatives and then a little bit showing the the problem. So, um, yeah. So it's it's uh, the last decade has also been kind of many observations. You had the one star in the Milky Way that was then first seen to be older than the whole universe, and then that was a huge problem. And then they just kept making measurements until they found one measurement that. <laughs> that was more in favor of it being a bit younger and then they changed the estimation model for the age and then suddenly it fit and it was just 13 billion years old and not 16 billion years old or something. you know that so, technological but you can't do that forever that you can't technological progression fudging things <laughs> into into the model um but that technological progression that uh uh is is that you were talking about with with learner where we're or not just that it's just the observational uh thing where we're going to get better and better and we're going to it's going to eventually show the expanding paradigm that's the only reason that i would that i'm even doing what i'm i'm doing is because that that sort of thing is um is is it gives me hope like there, there's there it's going to change for sure like things are going to change. I, when I was in school, I think I was in like sixth or, or fifth or sixth grade. And our science teacher was talking about the Milky Way and he told us, uh, or he was talking about black holes. And we had just talked about the Milky Way. And I, and I asked my teacher if there was a black hole in the middle of, of the Milky Way. And he said, he said, no, there's no, there's no black hole in the middle of the Milky Way. And I was like, there's, there should be because that's the center of the, the galaxy and, and he said no huh. he said no there's not and now we know that there's a supermassive black hole in the middle of the milky way and the, in fact there's probably a supermassive black hole in the middle of every spiral galaxy and you know i knew this in fifth grade just because like it was just intuitive but the mainstream didn't it took a long time for the mainstream to kind of come to terms with with things and it's not necessarily like i say the scientific thing it's it's just that the, the it's, a, it's a there's a cultural element to these big changes to stuff like the big bang but the the evidence is seemingly over overwhelmingly in favor of of a non-expanding paradigm i've heard children have the same intuitive question when they they can be like seven eight year, years old and they say that well, the moon is going around the earth. The earth is going around the sun. 
And then the question is like, well, what is the sun and the solar system? What is that going around? And it's like, well, nothing. It's just kind of floating around. It's like, but then suddenly we know, well, it's going, it is going in orbit around a black hole in the center. So then you might ask, what is the galaxy going around? But then maybe that's something, maybe there's something supermassive in, in, the, in the center of the clusters, for example. Um, but since we mentioned technolo technology and like you know, progress, um, this is a good place to just say a few things about um, the new telescope. The, the since the Hubble telescope, and now you get a new one, the Jim Webb telescope, because that was uh, shot up um, in uh, on Christmas Day, and it took about one month to get it into its orbit, and uh, then now it has six months of calibrating things, and then it's going to start taking pictures just July or August this year. And that might be a huge kind of game changer in terms of what we can observe, especially at the outer edges of the observable cosmos. So there's a kind of a couple of cool facts also about it. Like the Hubble telescope is, um, is going around the Earth uh, and it, it takes about 95 minutes for one, <laughs> one orbit around the Earth. Uh, it's only 500 kilometers away. So 500 kilometers. The Jim Webb telescope is going to be one and a half million kilometers. So that one is placed like four times further out than the moon. And then it's going to go in an orbit around the sun. So that's going to be a whole different, different, um, uh, we're going to go to results that are very different compared to the Hubble telescope. So that's going to be very exciting. Like there might be new discoveries and, and observations just after the summer, that's going to be a huge problem. So that's a bit exciting in, in the sense. Yeah, I'm very excited about it. That uh, that thing will probably open up a lot of new avenues. I, I heard that it was um, that like when they're looking at a galaxy at a very large distance with it, that it, it catches roughly one photon per second per per galaxy. And I was like, really? That don't seem right. But I don't know if that was an accurate measurement or, not, or, or or stat or not. But that didn't. I was like, that's kind of hard to comprehend that the galaxy is that that t takes up that tiny of a, um, amount of space or or has that brightness, that luminosity. Like they don't they don't even sound right. But like that would take a long time to be able to develop. Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, a, a view. Like, I don't, I, it's, it's kind of hard to comprehend, honestly. Like, I, I really is like, I expect it to be just like the Hubble deep field, you know, like just yeah. more galaxies that are old galaxies, you know? Yeah. And uh, we'll it, see. It could be a, for parts of the community, it might be a sigh of relief because you might have, uh, we might get new pictures and observations that just resets big part of the field like for, for for cosmology and then you also have a good reason to uh to try to work on alternative models compared to the current one it might be kind of a, a good sort of excuse to to start working on other things do you know what distances they're we're talking about here um well well light years thirteen and a half thirteen point six thirteen point seven billion light years so it's not it's not i mean it's far but it's not just ridiculously far true it's, it's funny I, I still uh a little throwback to the the last episode we had that it's it's inter like the reason we can't see any further is 
if, if we have a stable universe with gravitational redshift uh, being responsible for, for, for most or all of the redshift, it just means that the light waves can't travel further than 13.7 billion light years. So if, if we moved 5 billion light years, uh, years in any direction, we would just move the kind of light bubble around us 5 billion light years. And then we still, unless the density changes in that part of, if you move a little bit in the cosmos, then we will see exactly the same radius. Yeah, but I mean, is there a way to make a telescope, say, to view 15? I mean, just like, well, just like if you didn't view it, like say you didn't consider the gravitational redshift. Well, but, like, yeah, well, but the, the theory then would be that, or the, like the expanding space theory is that we can't, at that, at the 30.7, the galaxies are moving so fast fast away from us that the light will never reach us so that's why we can't see any further but if you think it's a stable universe and it's gravitational redshift it's just that uh, I think might, another galaxy might be just one well like just 200 million light years further out there's just another galaxy floating in peace there but that light will just stop it will fade to nothing 200 million light years from us I think that there's also like there's something called Olber's paradox, and uh -huh. the Olber's paradox is actually an argument against uh, a static universe and saying that you know all of the light would be the 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 night sky would not be would not be dark; it would be light because you could just see all the stars everywhere. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. and I think that 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 actually comes into play when you're using a telescope, you know. Because like eventually there's going to be a galaxy in the way, and you know, yeah. But it's also the, the just uh, the idea that we are we are not actively seeing into space; we're just receiving with more and more sensitivity. But then, no matter how much sensitivity you, and how much light you can take in, and, and as an observer, there's nothing to uh, anything. Fifteen billion light years is it's not the light will never reach us yeah there's like a hard limit at 13.7 yeah that's that's what i came up with also that's you know? that's that's the reach of any galaxy how far the light will go that's the maximum distance for the light and the redshift is because then at that point the redshift goes exponentially up to <laughs> to infinity <laughs> so it's just it's just a light wave just it's like um dropping so if this way of thinking is is right it's like dropping a rock in in the water and then the ripple effects stretches out and then eventually nothing so mm -hmm. it'll, be, it'll be the same idea for the light waves you uh, have yeah. to travel you'd have to send the telescope yeah at, I mean, at, yeah yeah, yeah exactly well if you send the telescope two billion light years out then that could look further or if you send it 1.7 billion light years out then that could receive things from 13.7 from that point and send it down to us i mean maybe i never thought about this maybe that's how as a civilization eventually you will expand your visual field of the universe that you keep building kind of <laughs> like boosters <laughs> light boosters or or um uh, sensor machinery way way out and that keeps uh, repeating the, the light waves are kind of sending new signals and then 
at the moment we can just it's like we're living in this analog age where we can only see that far out or we can only receive things from within that distance but then if we move we get kind of satellite telescopes then we will gradually expand our visual field into the universe yeah you could use von what are they called von i can't say his name von neumann uh-huh probes the, uh, where they the, it's basically just a self-replicating probe and okay, so yeah. you know you could actually you could actually explore the universe really quickly with a self-replicating like especially if you could use you know comets or meteorites or asteroids to yeah so you will have on. you will have the delay though of <laughs> five billion years if you if you put the probe out five billion years yeah uh, but you know for a civilization that as long as you have a lasting civilization, that's the that's yeah. the thing. Yeah. It's like, okay, once you start a process like that, you just like we'll know the answer to whatever you're solving, but at least you're it doesn't matter if it takes twenty thousand years or a million years or whatever. Yeah. And and if you look at it like holistically, not not from the human perspective, but just like life uh, like emerging on planet Earth. And then expanding, it will be like an organic expansion of the reach of a species and of a civilization. So, like if you think of it more like from the outside. Um, so, but uh, I I wanted to like you started saying a lot of things uh, about gravity and space time and mass. And so you mentioned in one of the emails that you thought space and time and gravity and mass are in some sense the same. And uh, that's an area I wanted to to ask you about and just. Get to know more about your thoughts about this. How do you view this as kind of these essential elements of of the nature of of cosmos itself? Well, it's 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 the uh, it's like a metric tensor or a tensor. Like I was saying earlier, that I think a geometrical approach, you know, even if it is differential geometry and it's hard for everybody to to comprehend and understand, but I do think that that is the right approach because you can use math to describe the universe that's the whole point right of of physics is to use math i mean in a way to use math to add some structure to this these laws that govern physics and so uh, space time like when you're talking about general relativity and the uh uh the, the the types of mathematical entities in general relativity you know like they they use these terms like space time and mass and gravity curvature you know whatever there's all these human words to describe it but it's 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 this in in the big picture it's just this it's like this mathematical system that has multiple components to it mm -hmm. and so that that's what i mean that space time gravity mass these are all the same thing. It's because it's this, it's there, there's, ob, there's an obvious difference between mass and empty space, but not when you really look, when you really look, empty space still has mass, like everywhere you look, there is no empty space. There is no true vacuum because even gravity permeates the vacuum and gravity as far as i know has mass energy you know the equivalent to mass energy 
into the, the just the curvature of space time itself generates more mass. And so, so long as there's just a little bit of mass present, there's going to be more mass present because of the, the, the gravitational field of the universe. And so there really is no difference between space and mass. And I believe time is the, uh, is just basically the motion of these things. Of course, time and space and mass and all these terms, they, they all have different meanings. And so it's kind of hard to communicate this, but uh time is basically the motion of mass uh motion is basically the the coordinate system uh the mass moving through the coordinate system mm -hmm. and you know like if you have if you have something that describes the universe as a whole something like general relativity which doesn't really describe the universe as a whole it just describes gravity gravity's impact to the space-time structure but the universe as a whole, like on the large scale, the macro scale, the uh, it you know gravity is is the the king. Gravity is what's controlling everything, mm -hmm. and so uh, that's why that I you know that I, I say that it's it's all the same thing. It's because it's really it's this it's this idea of the metric tensor or or whatever geometrical word you, or tensor you're going to use. Uh, more specifically, probably something like Ricky curvature tensor. Or, or uh, I'm, this is an area that I like. I'm not. I don't know anything about this stuff. Like I'm. I'm basically an investigative reporter reporting from the outside in because, I mean, I, like I grasp the concepts and, I, like I, I can follow them. But I am by no means some guy that just does differential geometry on the weekends. You know. Mm. Uh, however, uh, from the outside in looking in it appears that there's this thing that's it's called the the ricky flow um or the ritzy flow i've heard it pronounced both ways uh and this is this thing that uh, uh gregory perlman used to solve the point care conjecture and so it, it's this it's this flow to through space and it's just it's a naturally occurring mathematical entity for differential geometry kind of okay mm -hmm. this is like i say this is outside my realm like i like i should not be talking about this but it's anyways it, it's what it is it's it's this tensor that smooths out irregularities in 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 shapes mm -hmm. and, and and so for topology they, they in topology they call the ricky flow time uh the flow of time and so like you're it just allows you to uh anyways you you can you can change the sh the, the 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 shape of objects using the ricky flow and so that's how perlin was to prove the poincare conjecture which basically states that i think it's like uh any i don't even know <laughs> it's something about simply connected mm -hmm. uh objects and their uh, uh like how they can morph into other objects uh but the, the point is is that it's this it's it's this net okay so you could say that the mathematics of what we call the coordinate system has gravity that's kind of like the way that i'm understanding it it's like the the equations, the differential equations in topology kind of force gravity upon these topological objects. Mm. And, and, uh, 
and you know, the, there, the, there's a proof of that. Uh, uh, and so, you know, there, there, there's a guy named Richard Hamilton. I think his name's Richard Hamilton, but Hamilton, Hamiltonian mechanics. You've heard of this. Mm-hmm. Like he did a lot of uh, a lot of quantum mechanic type stuff, and a lot he was he was a, a topologist. Uh, anyways, he he published basically this this uh, exact same thing, this Ricky flow, back in you know the eighties, sometime around the year I was born. Um, and so th- this is not necessarily this uh, bizarre concept. It's kind of something that's been explored for a while. And, it, you know, it really comes from general relativity. This is basically the, the, the roots of it. And so that's, that, that's what I mean, that it's all the same thing. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's whatever you want to say. It's this, this tensor. And that's because this, this, like you can have a certain tensor where it's not just the flow doesn't go to a certain direction with boundary conditions like as in general relativity when you're talking about the the curvature of space-time around a, a massive object the the you know you, the, there's a direction to the gravity for that massive object but in general relativity you have to describe these boundary conditions well that's why the the ricky flow stuff this stuff that i was just talking about with the point care conjecture that's why it may be more appropriate is because it, there's not a specific, you don't have to have these boundary conditions for it. It's just this intrinsic property of whatever coordinate system you're working with uh, that that causes these smooths out irregularities. And, and, and that's basically gravity. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's just an intrinsic property of existence basically just you could even say math but math is just this demonstration of existence you know you know is i find this very fascinating because it's um it kind of balances out what we said earlier that like well maybe that the static universe is a little bit boring but then the stuff you're talking about now maybe there are even more exciting interesting things to discover plus we can just move on (laughs) also in cosmology and start looking at these like the nature of gravity in itself. Uh, it also occurs to me like it's both Einstein and Stephen Hawking as well. Like they end up with gravity as the, the big, <laughs> that is the big one. Like in Hawking's uh, thinking is kind of, that's what sets it all into motion. That's kind of the, um, the, 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 the <laughs> like the first mover almost from Aristotle. Like that's, uh, is even in Dante they have the same thing with uh, as it travels into the heavens and you get to the the, the prime uh, primo mobile like the the outer shell of them all and just describes how it it, it all starts the whole cosmos starts with a, a, a little light beam coming from like the divine <laughs> divine source and touching this big sphere and then that starts spinning and then that starts um time in itself uh, and also then this <laughs> gravity will be a part of like that which um is like a, even though even if it's not kind of the first thing in a sequence it's the deeper thing that is creating some kind of energy or movement yeah like it's kind of hard to comprehend a universe without gravity like if you just yeah. stop and think like if you remove gravity what does the universe look like well first of all everything just separates and so then it's like okay well then well, what and then yeah. nothing happens yeah you know, exactly nothing happens if you're not separate, so it's, it's just like it just stands still. 
gravity is time, you know, like it's basically the exact same thing. And, you know, it's what that is, is the, the motion of space or mass vice versa, you know, like, yeah, there's lots of different things there, but it's gravity is this thing that's like, it, it affects, it's a single formula. You could say that effect impacts every single square inch of the universe, you know, just according to the amount of mass in that square inch of the universe. I mean, it's, it's, the more you think about it, the more mysterious it becomes. And even like Newton had wondered (laughs) how can it, what is this force that is instantly working on the moon, pulling it towards the earth through empty space? And what is the nature of that force how does it it's very bizarre how, how can it really work yeah um also that's definitely one area to to keep looking into if if um if the expanding space uh, stuff is is one day let's say 10 years from now it's it's kind of sorted or like settled for, for or like more or less kind of there's a shift in the, the view of it then uh, we should probably look more at the gravity. Um, we also had, uh, like, I think the last point on the list now was the ether, and then maybe that also goes into the gravity. But I was fascinated by reading about, uh, well, because it ties into the nature of, of a wave as well. This is another topic I, I talked to a good friend the other day, and then starting to think philosophically about what a wave is, like, if especially if you have a like a stadium, like a big <laughs> like sports event, and everybody is gonna gets up and down and create a wave. Uh, like, what is the wave in it? What is it that's moving? Like individuals are getting up and down, or you can say the same with water, for example. Like, water is just kind of waving up and down, but then the the wave is moving, and then what is the wave in itself? And then then that connected it back to how people have always thought that light as a wave needs a medium because it's a wave therefore it has to move through something and then it was interesting to read about ether as an idea of kind of uh, tiny particles that are just much much smaller than atoms but they they are permeating everything in in the universe so uh, i think you had some thoughts about that as well yeah i mean i don't know if particles is is the right word and i don't know if ether is the right word I think that it's just you you just have to understand then that the, the the metric the space-time coordinate system is math yeah you know it is mass and that the because otherwise where does where is where does mass get introduced you know it, it gets introduced through these tensors that you mm. use in in general relativity and I think that that's just because it's a primitive mathematical description it's it's a primitive approach to to resolving gravity. You have to you have to you have to define the boundaries for the objects you're talking about in general relativity. And so these uh I think that that you know you could say particles and you can say uh uh the particles of mass and that's that's fun but but you know like the word like it's just the word particle you're supposed to mean it's supposed to mean that it's a say a spherical structure but this is just a uh this is just a uh a a a shortcut in physics there's this joke that i tell i wrote it in my book i've told it several times but where 
the, the there's a farmer that uh, uh hold on one second do you know what i'm talking about this the, the farmer and the physicist joke where there's spherical cows the spherical cows joke. yeah oh i yeah i heard <laughs> you know where you know he says like the farmer asked the physicist a question he's like and the physicist gives him a response and he's like but this only here's my, my solution but this only works for spherical cows in a vacuum yeah, yeah it's because yeah. physicists <laughs> use this way of of describing things they just narrow everything down to this motionless spinless sphere yeah. and you know that's that's basically what a particle is and so you could say bit you know a bit of mass but yeah. I, I think it's just better to say that the whole thing is mass and then it's all divided yeah. so really it's it's like like you could you could just have all of the universe in all of the mass of the universe is one yeah, and then yeah. and then divided by whatever part you know uh, yeah. and so that, that that would be instead of having so a star would be like one 100 trillionth of the universe instead of saying that it has x amount of mass it's yeah. just it, and that's just this language thing that you were talking about earlier how language comes into play it's really the same thing it's just how you're looking at it and i think that that's that's a much better way yeah. of doing it just a personal opinion because the ether implies that there's some new new substance you know especially the stuff from mickelson and morley like the stuff from mickelson and morley the ether from the mickelson and morley thing was a uh, like this rigid grid that yeah. that didn't move and so it was like all of the matter in the universe was relative to the to the the ether but that's not that you know that's not the modern day ether the modern day ether is some it's basically just particles of mass like you said and you know that's fine it, but i think it's 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 much better to use a, a differential geometry at that level when you're talking about the fundamental nature of the universe because it's all the same thing yeah. like you know it's, it's just what the thing is doing it's um it's very uh, it just strikes me now that there is again something about which brain hemisphere you are thinking with, because the particle idea is very much a left hemisphere um, concept in itself, like to find the essential bit or something, um, while thinking of it like this all mass and it also then motion and if it's the time, then you're thinking with the right hemisphere, and that's. Um, uh, it's a whole different debate, but there's some uh, th <laughs> just a bit with the McGilchrist work again that that much since science, like modernism and science, the last five hundred years, the culture and the mentality has shifted very much onto the premises of the of the left hemisphere and left hemisphere thinking, and then that will again grasp for control and certainty and kind of uh, small tangible instances as kind of the, the basic units. Uh, and it's not an argument in itself, but it can be an indication that like maybe if you try to think more in a holistic way with more like right hemisphere, where you would have, you can create different kinds of, 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 of models or understanding or thoughts about what, for example, ether could be. Uh, so, but there's, there's one thing from when I read about some, some of the ether, one thing that I liked about the idea was that uh, this just resonates with me that you can, if you've seen one of those uh, infogram things where you have it goes from the um, like the small the smallest uh, like atoms or elementary particles and it goes up to like molecules and then substances and this and that and that the, the 
solar system and then the universe, like the whole cosmos you have, like from the smallest to the biggest. And I always, when I look at it, I just think like you can expand, <laughs> you can expand it infinitely in both directions. You can zoom out from the visible cosmos infinitely, and you can also zoom further down into the microcosmos infinitely. So what we think is, no, no matter what we think, now we finally understood the smallest part. I think you can, if you zoom in a trillion times, you will find something new. So it will be this idea of that it is fractal. Like it's like exploring a mathematical fractal. It, you can go forever. It, it will never stop. So that's, um, that will be... <laughs> Yeah. Even the small scale too, like this is. I, I seriously think this. Like, yeah. if you if you go small enough, like we're talking, you know, like a trillion times smaller than the smallest known particle. Yeah. Then you know there may be other galaxies. I, look, I, I <laughs> sincerely believe that. Yeah. Uh, uh, my friend Paul, he uh, he argues with me about this all the time. He says that there there must be a fundamental building block. And I was like, yeah, but that fundamental building block can start from the middle. And, and he, yeah, doesn't, he doesn't quite comprehend that. But that's, that's an interesting that's thought. I yeah, I love it. <laughs> and especially if you think of the middle as kind of a scale that is in our own image, like the, a scale that we are comfortable with. And then, yeah. then you can yeah. start there and you can go up and down infinitely uh, because this is, well, that's, that's <laughs> what we are shaped to perceiving and thinking in our, our own scale primarily so but it's it's interesting when you when you mention your friend there because that's that will be another uh, example of kind of the battle of the hemispheres like what kind of thinking are we using when we try to approach or engage with these deepest questions and um, there's a very often very um, uh, kind of strong um like the left hemisphere is is the center of aggression as well. <laughs> so when you threaten people's left hemispheric models of the world, poke at their axioms, they might be like uh, strangely angry and aggressive, and that is the how the left hemisphere works. So if someone is really focused on that. I had a friend who was so sure that the brain is like a machine. And he was so angry if I said like, no, but there's more to how the brain works than just like a mechanical machine. There are other ways of using your brain. That was the same kind of response of, of anger. And um, now through reading more about the brain hemispheres, I, I, you can interpret that as being, again, like which brain are you using of your two brains? And uh, just so much yeah. you're describing, is, it sounds like you, you, you're very good at going or using both. And that is, yeah. I think I think that that's a that's a that's an important thing. Is like you do want to use both. Like there's like that last part that I just said about you know zooming into the smallest area. That that right there. That's that's probably a left brain hemisphere thing. Mm -hmm. Like talking about the fractal nature. Yeah, it appears that way when you're looking at it from the right brain sense, but it's you know, it, it gets into the realm of who knows and unanswerable. And, and so that, you know, you have to use the left brain to kind of, to work from there. Like, I, you know, yeah. who knows if there's galaxies that are, you know, smaller than atoms. I don't, I don't really know that, but, and you know, no, well, there's no way of ever knowing that, but it's kind of fun to explore. So you do have to yes, use both exactly. left and right brain. It's kind of like, it's like a first like it's important to use first principles, you know, like, 
like Elon Musk is so successful because like he understands first principles and put them in, in, in practice. Like he says that, you know, he'll, he'll say, okay, we have to, uh, we have to get satellites into space. What's the best way to do this? Whatever. We're going to build our own rocket. Mm. Like he, you know, like he just, he, he looks at the problem and then comes up with the, the right solution. And it's like, it doesn't matter what, cultural element or impacts there are Mm. or not just cultural but there's all these other things there's all these other things that impact your decision making or problem solving and you have to you have to get rid of all that stuff and and solve from the the best most practical most obvious solutions you know and all you have to do all you have to do to change the mainstream cosmological thing is is that you know that the there is no there is no metric expansion. Yeah. In other words, like you have, you'd have to say whatever about the redshift. You know, you, maybe it's just a mystery that you don't know. But there, you you can't assume that the metric is expanding. Like there's some a mm. tensor or like uh, that that is you know non-Euclidean it creates this non-Euclidean uh, form that doesn't include you know in the opposition of gravity like that's literally the opposite of what we would would naturally assume like that that sort of thing it's not a first principles like that comes from nowhere really you know like it ended up being that uh they were able to do lots of stuff with that because they didn't have to worry about the redshift and so you know, and maybe that was helpful in some ways, but it, the, the problem is, is that there's no, there's no fundamental reason for thinking that it's there. It's just, it's basically just saying like, when you're doing that, you're basically like the, the whole Lambda paradigm, you're just, you're acknowledging the problem exists, but then you're giving a, a, a you're adding a non-solution as a solution. So it's kind of like dark energy, the name term, dark energy and dark matter. Yeah. Like they, they sound like solutions to the problem, but no, they're just restating the problem as a solution. It's yeah. kind of like the Jeopardy part. You know, I, it's kind of like Jeopardy. It's <laughs> literally Jeopardy. <laughs> I I keep getting the this, this illustration of the epicircles for the Ptolemaic uh, solar system, that the more observation they got of the planets, they invented more and more epicircles to make it all fit. And then, <laughs> and then they had this, uh, like it was supposed to be, or they made that even as an argument that, oh, look at this, like the divine, there's a pattern here, like this kind of embroidery pattern of all these epicircles. And that was proof that it was even more divine because it was so, so kind of <laughs> symmetrical and beautiful. Uh, so it's, that's how inflation theory sounds to me as well. At the, at the beginning, the universe on the, expanded a lot faster just to get rid of the flat problem but then even people like roger penrose is skeptical and founders of the inflation theory are skeptical towards it and they just invented it on the fly and then it's it's also yeah, inflation is exactly yeah it's, it's exactly the same thing it's just a restatement of the problem as yes. a single word yeah you know because it's like oh it's like you have it's like you have this math problem and you're you have x you're trying to solve for x you don't know what x is and then they say oh x is billy bob yeah and, and you're like okay what does that mean they're like okay this is what happens when you have billy bob and then they just write out the formula that you just wrote yeah and you're like no that's not 
it's not Billy Bob. And they're like, yeah, it is. It's Billy Bob. Look. Yeah, and you're exactly. like, no, that's okay. not Billy Bob. That's X. Look at this observation. And that proves that Billy Bob is the reason. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, that's, that's what blows my mind about A, the Big Bang Theory, B, inflation, yeah. the uh, 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 dark matter, dark energy, yeah. even the cosmic microwave background radiation, which is like, yeah. you, you, you know, they, they, they use it as a, uh, they're like, oh, see, we were right about the Big Bang. We got the CMBR. And yeah. you're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> like it, it's, exactly. it's just another mystery. So, um, yeah. I just I read since you mentioned uh, Elon Musk. I just read something where he said uh, the other day that uh, we should like strive towards being a, a multi-planetary species as soon as possible. Also, in part so we can back up the biosphere in case in case a calamity on Earth happens that we have made a backup <laughs> somewhere. And I I just this is this is interesting. This is big thinking. I, I like it's very kind of engineering like thinking, but I I really like it. It's like that's that's a good point i love it yeah i mean yeah. you know so, a lot of people are like well there's nothing on mars well you could make mars cool like like well maybe yeah. maybe we can make mars cool i don't know not to <laughs> switch topic entirely but try, uh, terraforming mars could give us enormous insights into hey, into and there may be, there may be ways of doing it yeah absolutely so that's good uh and also just to add one other thing when you said like the balance um uh, but the thinking, just also, this is for listeners, if you haven't heard about this before, but like how it's supposed to work with your two brain parts is that like both are essential, both are crucial, and they should just work together. But the, how it's supposed to work is that you, you perceive things with your right hemisphere, you take it in kind of unfiltered with your right hemisphere, then things are moved to your left, which takes it apart, builds a model, and then the model is supposed to go back into your right hemisphere and be kind of integrated or unified with what you already know from earlier. So it's this constant kind of circle movement almost of how we observe and perceive and learn and integrate things. But the problem is that if like, things are too left brain tilted, you just create a model and then you don't, you don't unify it into anything. You just stay with the model forever and then you stop seeing the world and reality. You just see the model. And this, is, this is a very common effect that people relate to their model of the world instead of the reality of the world. And if those are in conflict or contradicting each other, you get internal tension in people, which uh, happens with everybody. <laughs> so there's just like being aware of it. It's like a system of guessing and then assessing the guess. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly. Only, it's like yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, yeah, they're kind of, they kind of go hand in hand, but that don't always mean the guessing is right. Sometimes it's wrong, you yeah. know. Yeah, it's, exactly. it's still a good thing that they it's still working but uh it's it they sometimes they're in opposition exactly but that is still working when they are in opposition but you have to re yeah that's you it's know, a pro process part, of learning <laughs> yeah has that, to guess until it's right you know yeah exactly <laughs> okay cool so uh we covered a lot of stuff now. Uh, <laughs> I, I think it's especially interesting the some of the things like towards the end there we're talking about the the nature of waves, the ether, and gravity as well, and some about the thinking. Um, do you have any final words or kind of thoughts the next year or two or your own work where you're headed with things? Uh, you know. 
my, my message is fairly simple. Like I've pretty well covered my message with, with you, especially over the course of the, we've mm. done three now, huh? Mm. Yep. Uh, and so, you know, like, uh, like it's, I, I think keeping it simple is the most important thing because I think that it's really important. People understand that there's definitely a way to show that gravitational redshift is, can match up with Hubble's law. And it's a really super simple equation. Like mm. it's, this stuff is very simple. Yeah. If anybody's interested in my website, the universe is not expanding.com. <laughs> Try to keep it as simple as possible. I've also got a YouTube channel and things like that, that, uh, uh, my name's Chris Brown on YouTube. So if anybody wants to look at you, you'd have to type, I don't know how you'll find it. Good luck. You know, it's probably, <laughs> I would not use Rihanna Chris Brown as a, I think if you just term. search for universe not expanding, <laughs> yeah. you, you come up on on uh, several of the top ten uh, videos. I think. Yeah, and so I would love that if I had more subscribers, I would I would make more videos. Yeah. Um, it's a little weird talking myself too on video, and I should probably interview other people, but then that takes a lot of work. Is is you know setting up interviews with with people, uh, but. Anyways, regardless, uh, I, like I think keeping it simple is the most important thing because if you can show that there's an explanation for the redshift yeah. and that there's, and then the rest of this stuff, like like the the, the Mond paradigm is how you can show that there's a, a, a gravitational redshift. It's not just my ideas. Now, mm. you know, Milton Mordenheim doesn't say this. But like it's still his work, this minimum acceleration that's coming from larger scale objects. Mm -hmm. This is going to create a gravitational redshift that is distance dependent. And so like it, it depends on the distance, which means that light tires with distance. Uh, and the rest of the stuff for the non-expanding paradigm is really kind of super simple because the mind thing plays into dark matter. Now, I don't think mind is absolutely accurate for dark energy, but there's probably some other stuff that, that, that comes into it. But most of the major unsolved things kind of, kind of come together a little better. And so it's, you know, but, but I think it's also important not to ditch things like, you know, like special and general relativity or, or, or the other, the other parts mm. of mainstream physics, you know, there's a lot, even, even lots of stuff in cosmology can probably be salvaged because the redshift was just accounted for within the paradigm. Yeah. And so, you know, if, if it's just gravity, then there should be a parameter or a, you know, like for that, like, so that, you know, you would have this, the paradigm would account for that redshift before you did anything else. So the, basically the work is the same, you know, mm. it's just the interpretation that was wrong. <laughs> yeah. Which I think I, I it's going to take, it's going to, it's going to take a long time to unravel and it's going to be, a, it's going to be a really tumultuous time period, but it'll probably be uh, aggressive and brief once yeah. it happens. Yeah. I don't know what the trigger will be. And it may be this James Webb thing. I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's, it's like the when is the last drop kind of. <laughs> it's it could be hard to, to say, but uh, I I think you're right. And I um, just as being an open person who loves to learn stuff and explore stuff, I see the positive side of all of this that we might have this new golden age of of new science in cosmology that can be 
that will be uh, coherent as well. So when you pick up a cosmology book, it's not like you're reading one, two chapters and then it gets, and you get into dark energy and dark matter and like 95% of the universe is something we don't know what is and you can't see it, we can't detect it, but it makes everything fit in our equations. Already there is kind of this field is strange. So to sort this stuff out and, and just having <laughs> really good sound science can be uh, like exhilarating. It can be something really, really exciting and, and open up for the, just new huge areas and avenues of exploration. So that's, that's kind of partly my enthusiasm for this <laughs> is that there's something much brighter and more interesting like lying in the future, I think. Yeah, it, I mean, it's the Big Bang Theory also has this giant impact on culture, just the people's interpretation of it. And yeah. it's, I think it's really negative. Honestly, it's this materialist view, you know, this yeah. idea that, it, you know, oh, we had nothing at some point and then now we got this and this yep. is what we got. And that, that to me, it's like so limiting in nature. Mm. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of people that would disagree, like Sean Carroll would disagree with that assessment. But to me, the mystery in an infinite universe is especially infinite in time yeah is is so more exhilarating like and there's yeah. so many more uh avenues that philosophy would would want to explore especially on a global level you'd want multiple mm -hmm. cultures to kind of assess that but you know instead we have this on a global level so basically all cultures you know uh -huh. they hear that science thinks that the universe is expanding and so that they, they, you know that they, they use that and then have their own interpretation of what that means that would all change but I, it would it would take a long time it, in other words it's a paradigm shift it, not just in science but in culture too yeah. to where uh it's kind of like the flat earth when we went from flat yeah. earth to round earth or the you know the geocentric model or like it just like it's 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 pretty groundbreaking honestly it's a lot it's it's a lot more impactful than than someone like sean curl would like to admit though that's yeah. why i wish they weren't so quick to say that it's expanding because the default would be it's non-expanding yeah. that's the default like that's your baseline and then you have this idea of what might have you know like you could have these potentials other potentials that are not the default but the default is this non-expanding idea yeah. and so when you when you imply some theory on that level then you need to have a little bit of humility humility yeah and they have not their the observations and the data do not reach the you know the the, the I don't know how they can it can sustain their arguments for much longer. But I was thinking about like the last two minutes about the, you mentioned before humility because this is an old medieval and ancient idea that humility is is the key to learning and to discovery uh, and also to virtue in itself, like for more like moral <laughs> theological uh, traditions. Uh, but it's, it is the number one uh, like. The necessity but also the key to 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 the great things and uh, that's exactly what is what can get us out of this being stuck in in a model <laughs> so um but that is um is a challenge in itself it, it 
it requires a bit of courage as well to but it's, know, it's partly a habit like if you can think of it's just you can take it on a very base level like we don't understand everything and that's okay that's kind of all all you need as a starting point instead of saying we know everything and there's no no mysteries anymore uh, which is kind of logically not accurate either so yeah i mean the, the one of the things that science has done it has stolen the magic from nature yeah and and you know and it's not there's no reason just because you give things names does not mean anything like it's it's interesting like the the choice of words you're using here because naming things is what the left hemisphere is doing uh to because it's a language center and uh and the speaking center especially but it names things to gain control over the world. And it operates exactly in the way that you described it, that as long as you just put a label on it, it creates a feeling of control over it. And then it's yeah. sorted. And then what happens is that you don't see the reality, you just see the label and the word, and then you don't go beyond it, like that specific name you put on it. So uh, it's just one more of the, of the countless traps of having a cultural problem of a, of a of two left hemispheric uh, mentality as well so uh, like if but, you were to uh show if you were able to show say a, a smartphone to someone from the 200 years ago you were able to just you could go back in time and you pulled out your phone and showed it to them at first that smartphone would be the giant mysterious thing say you just handed it to them you turned it on you gave it to them and walked away and mm -hmm for a while they would be so super fascinated with that but eventually they just they'd be like oh that's the it would just be its thing and it wouldn't be that big of a deal yeah <laughs> they, yeah. they wouldn't even know how to it's, use uh, it it goes straight into so many imbalance philosophies and all of that as well um so i'm thinking about this is way on the side again but like um well just the idea that when you start uh defining things into detail you are uh, you're removing the mystery and the magic as you said but you're also replacing something big and mysterious with uh like with something that is very reductive and you might yeah. think that it is a representation that is uh, that covers what you try to think about but it, it's not it's a very very reductive representation and that's uh that's a huge trap for limiting yourself and also for um just in general you limit yourself but you're also removing so many of the best things in the world and in life and the experience of life so uh, i think we're just fascinated by novelty like novelty for humans is just this yeah. it's like the peak of fascinating things yeah. and novelty only lasts for a certain amount of time because really there's endless amount of novelty on planet earth it's just we you know and if, if like if you don't believe that like if you don't believe that there's an endless amount of novelty on planet earth mm. then i would encourage you to to uh, pack a, a backpack full of all the necessary things and hike miles into a wilderness mm and walk around and look at the tiny little things on the ground floor and in the trees yeah. and mm -hmm. not just at nighttime, just all the time, just, just 
take a close look at nature. If you have to take, some, if you have to eat some mushrooms to do that, then whatever. But like the the nature of our universe is so incredibly fascinating that uh, it shouldn't be ignored just because we have all these scientific explanations. Quote yeah. unquote, you know. I love it. I think we're going to let that be the last word because that was so beautifully put, and I agree 100%. And just let the, <laughs> the mystery and the wonder of nature be kind of the, the lasting thought after this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I hope we can talk again uh, later, maybe in a few months, maybe when Jim Webb has sent us some new pictures, and then we can have another update. Yeah, that'll be awesome. Yeah, I'm, uh, I am excited about what what this year is going to bring on the on that front so um just want to say thank you so much for i did hear yeah. just real, just real quickly i did hear i wanted to mention this one about james webb that they i think that they've already got enough data from it to do another measurement of hubble's law and it was like just slightly higher which i found interesting that it was it was like 73 kilometers uh, second per megaparsec or something well like i think the calibration has gone really really well so it's uh so that's good so it's kind of it's promising that it's going to function really well so um yeah so but i just want to say thank you so much again for taking the time it's a huge joy to, to talk with you and um also to all the listeners thank you so much for uh, for joining us and listening for this uh, episode and um see you again in another episode bye bye